Father, thank you that you speak the Bible to us. Uh, Thank you that you've been and are showing us Jesus as we read Mark together. Please do open our eyes and continually open our eyes that we might see him more clearly and so see you, his Father, our Savior. In him, amen. Is the truth you know truly true? That's what Mark's pushing us on this week. Because truth can be false. I shared a link to a bunch of J.I. Packer quotes in our community site this week. Maybe you saw this one. Uh, Half-truth masquerading as whole truth is wholly untrue. Uh, Packer by name, Packer by nature. There's a lot of ideas in there. Uh, But half-truth masquerading as whole truth is wholly untrue. In today's passage, we'll see people and demons acknowledge true things about Jesus. What he did, who he is, but they give the truth a context which hides the truth. Or they leave hearers to add their own definition so that the true statement doesn't really bring any understanding. Is the truth you know truly true? We had a week off Mark last week, so I thought we'd just quickly get oriented. So right near the beginning, uh, John the Baptist preached in the wilderness. He prepared the way for the Lord God to come, and Jesus came next. Uh, The Lord Jesus came to judge and deliver. We've seen the Lord Jesus' authority. Uh, He taught, and people marveled at his assumed authority. They were stunned to see his words shape reality. He commanded demons come out, and it was so. He forgave sins, and it was so. He spoke healing, and it was so. We've seen the Lord Jesus' authority. We've seen people respond to him. The disciples' immediate obedience. The cleansed leper disobeying. The Pharisees and the Herodians scheming Jesus' death. Which brings us to chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus and his disciples are at the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Mark says people uh, have come from all around Israel and from beyond. Uh, The crowd is so enormous that they're so eager to see Jesus uh, so that that he can heal them that Jesus gets into a boat and puts out off the shore a bit to avoid being crushed. Verse 11, unclean spirits see him. And when they see him, they fall before him. They cry out, you are the son of God. Now, that's exactly what Mark called Jesus in his first sentence. God in heaven called Jesus his beloved son straight after his baptism. But the people in this story, they don't see it yet. These demons do. It seems that the the demons are the only ones who see Jesus clearly. Chapter 124 is a demon who called Jesus the Holy One of God. Here they know he is the Son of God. But chapter 3, verse 12, Jesus orders them not to make him known. Why? I think we're supposed to wonder why. Why this secrecy? 
After all, Jesus isn't being subtle about his authority. He's hardly hiding. He's preached all around the region. Uh, He's healed hundreds, probably thousands. He's cast out countless demons. You can imagine how different daily life was. Uh, Crippled beggars, well, walking the streets looking for work. Uh, Out of their minds, demon-possessed, now clothed and in their right mind. Lepers back with their families. And everyone knew Jesus did it. Jesus wasn't hiding who he was. So why not let the demons tell people what they know? Well, hang in there. Mark's going to show us why. Verse 13, Jesus moves through an ocean of people drawn from the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, Their leaders, we've just seen them rejecting and plotting against Jesus. And Jesus goes up on a mountain and he calls and appoints 12 new leaders. There is inner circle. Jesus names the 12 the ones who will follow him most closely. Sorry, Mark names the 12, the ones who will follow Jesus more closely, most closely. And he tells us that one of them will eventually reject Jesus. Then verse 20, Jesus goes home. Uh, the crowd's still with him. Uh, there's not even, there's so, so much with him that there's not even room to eat. His family hear what's happening and they come to seize him. And there's an unexpected line on their lips. You kind of expect them to come and... They they want to grab him, whatever they want to grab him for. You expect them to say something like, he's amazing. But they're saying he's out of his mind. Now, I'd understand them saying that if he spoke and it was not so. You'd think I was mad if I started commanding demons to come out and they didn't. If I, told a par- if I walked up to someone who's paralyzed in the street and said to them, stand up, and they didn't. If I said to lepers, be clean, and they weren't. You'd think I was mad. And speaking as if your words shape reality, it is a sign of madness if your words don't shape reality. But Jesus speaks, and it is so. It's weird to hear his family say he's out of his mind. I'm just thinking about that weirdness. It's convinced me that they mean something like what we're about to hear the scribes claim. They think a demon's got him. Chapter 5, uh, we're going to see some locals in, Garrison, in the region of the gatherings. They're going to be shaken when they see a formerly possessed man sitting clothed and in his right mind. I think they think he's possessed. Perhaps though they do just think he's mad. The heavyweight heavyweight scribes from Jerusalem, they definitely don't. They're telling everyone that Jesus is possessed by the biggest, baddest demon. Verse 22, they don't deny what he did. They know he did miracles. They know he cast out demons. There's too much evidence for them to deny that truth. But they explain why Jesus can do such miracles. 
They say it's because he's possessed by Satan. Of course, Jesus can cast out demons. They say he's possessed by the biggest, baddest demon of them all. He's just outpowering them. Jesus sets them straight. He teaches some short statement parables. Uh, They illustrate his argument. They reveal the truth. First, he gives two pictures of what's not happening. Uh, He asks, how how can Satan cast out Satan? Verse 24. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Whether large-scale kingdom or small-scale family tribe, no leader commands their followers to divide and infight. All he would achieve would be weakening his forces, be more vulnerable to his enemies. Jesus is saying Satan has more sense. He has more sense than to weaken and destroy his own kingdom. Satan's goal is self-preservation, not self-destruction. It makes zero sense to say that Jesus is working for Satan because Jesus has been fighting against Satan's kingdom. Saying Jesus can cast out demons because he is possessed by the biggest, baddest demon is a ridiculous idea. It can't be that. Verse 27 is the parable that illustrates what it is. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless first he binds the strong man. Then indeed he can plunder his house. When Jesus casts out demons, when, uh, when he claims people back from Satan's control, he's carrying away plunder. And he can only carry away plunder because that, that he can only carry away the possessions that used to be Satan's because Satan is already tied up and defeated. Jesus isn't powerful because Satan has empowered him. Jesus' miracles are evidence that Jesus has already overpowered Satan. The scribes saw what Jesus had done. They knew he had done it. They didn't deny it. But their their accusation against him is outrageous. It's uninformed. They could not be more wrong. The Holy Spirit who descended on Jesus when he was baptized. Uh, sorry, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus when he was baptized, and the scribes are claiming that Jesus is acting because an unclean spirit is in him. Jesus warns them, verse 28, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. <laughs> Now, hear the reality. You know, God forgives all manner of things we would never forgive. He forgives all, he forgives all manner of things we would never forgive. But these scribes, they are calling good evil. They're rejecting the Son to whom the Spirit testifies. The evidence says that the spirit-filled Lord Jesus has defeated Satan. The strong man is bound. The evidence is saying that. It's declaring it. And they twist the evidence to say, ha, Jesus is empowered by Satan. 
The eternally unforgiven sin is rejecting God when he offers forgiveness. The danger from which there is no forgiveness is the settled conviction that God's good rescuer is evil. In spite of the Spirit's testimony to him. And the scribes do seem to have settled. The parables haven't convinced them. Because look at verse 30. They're still saying Jesus has an unclean spirit. It's ironic to hear these eager readers and teachers of God's holy word accuse Jesus of having an unclean spirit. It's ironic because we have heard unclean, unholy spirits acknowledging Jesus as the Holy One of God, as the Son of God. See, these little parables, I think they shine light on why Jesus silenced the demons. Why he wouldn't let them speak? Why he wouldn't let them speak the truth about him? See, they're Satan's demons. They weren't trying to help Jesus. Satan didn't send them to help Jesus by making him known. They didn't come along Je- alongside Jesus, uh, just out preaching and think, oh, I'll just come along and I'll help him out by declaring that he is the Holy One of God or by declaring that he's Son of God. They're aiming to undermine him. They're fighting for Satan's kingdom against Christ's kingdom by declaring who Jesus is. Because their bare acknowledgement of Jesus as Holy One of God or, or as Son of God, well, they bring as much misunderstanding as understanding. Because people would fill those descriptions with their own ideas and expectations. They'd follow Jesus, trusting Him for what He did not promise, hoping for what He would not deliver. Perhaps following him as Christ, Son of God, as the one who thinking that he would deliver a military victory in their day. Perhaps Christ is one who would deliver prosperity. Or Christ is one who saves from hell but demands no change in life from those he saves. See, Satan would be delighted for you to know a true thing about Jesus. Even to know that Jesus is Christ if you didn't understand what it means for Jesus to be Christ. Satan would be delighted for you to know a true thing about Jesus and then to fill it with untruth. The demon spoke the tr- a truth designed to deceive. So Jesus silenced them. And his, fa- his family, they, they want to silence him, verse 31. Uh, they're outside while Jesus teaches inside. Uh, someone tells Jesus, uh, uh, your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. Jesus looks at the people inside and he says, here are my mother and my brothers the ones sitting inside listening to his word, they're more family to him than his biological brothers and his mother who are refusing to listen. The ones that do the will of God, they are privileged to be family with Jesus. 
who is the beloved son of God. But not everyone who hears listens. Chapter 4 begins with Jesus uh, back in a boat near the shore. Uh, yeah, back in a boat near the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, he taught an enormous crowd with many parables, and Mark just tells us this one. Uh, a sower sows seed widely, it falls on path and rocky ground and thorny soil and good soil. Only the seed on the good soil produces a crop in the end, though. But what a crop! Uh, 1 to 10 would be a great outcome. Uh, 1 to 30, 1 to 60, 1 to 100, that's an outrageously good yield. Jesus tells a story and says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Most of the crowd push on, they leave. Jesus is left with the 12 disciple apostles uh, and some more. They ask him about the parables. And he says in verse 10, chapter 4, verse 10, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but to those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive, may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. This is where I've got the insider, outsider language on the, on, on the outline. Uh, there are the insiders, the, the people who hear and trust and follow Jesus. And outside are those who are refusing to listen, refusing to trust. Jesus explains what's happening. Uh, as he speaks, he, he quotes a few lines from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Uh, and the thing about Isaiah speaking is that even before Isaiah spoke a word as God's prophet... He knew the people he spoke to would not listen. Actually, his job was to show things so that they wouldn't see. To speak so that they wouldn't hear. To explain so that they wouldn't understand. Now, they, they wouldn't listen because they had hard hearts. In other words, he spoke hardened their hearts so that they wouldn't turn and be healed. So they wouldn't repent and be forgiven. The word God spoke through Isaiah brought division. It confirmed rebels in their rebellion. But also brought comfort and salvation to those who listened to it. And it's the same with Jesus' words. His parables bring division. They confirm rebels in their rebellion. They bring salvation to those who listen. Jesus' parable of the four soils illustrates it. And he explains it to the insiders. Uh, the same seed falls on path, uh, stony ground, thorny soil, good soil. But the results are different. Uh, the hidden differences become obvious. The same word is heard by all sorts of people. Some reject it immediately. Some are initially open. At first they're delighted and excited. But when holding... The word brings suffering and shame. They let go. Others who are open at first let go because of distractions and attractions. Sooner or later, their desires and instincts win out over trust in God who speaks. Anxious for this, this life, they trust in wealth, feeling, promise to deliver safety and security. 
They trust their own instincts as their best guides instead of trusting God who speaks. The first three soils are about people who immediately or eventually reject the word God speaks. But some hear and they hear the very same word. They accept it and they go on accepting. They trust and they go on trusting. They bear fruit. They they, they truly thrive. So this is a parable about how parables work, but really it's a parable not about how God's word works. People hear God speak. They trust him and his word does its work in them. But others hear God speak, they reject him immediately or eventually. And as we've read, we've we've seen outsiders rejecting. Those scribes, uh, they heard the parables. Clear and focused, good illustration parables. Kingdom divided, house divided, strong man's house plundered. They heard those parables and refused to hear. They hardened their hearts. Actually, hearing the parables closed their ears. Jesus and his word made the previously kind of hidden rejection of God obvious. It's in their immediate rejection. We've also heard Mark warn us what Judas Iscariot will do. He will harden his heart eventually. So so we're reading on to see where things are going to go for the other disciples, uh, for the followers, for for the crowd who had left and didn't get to hear this. It's not obvious yet what's going to happen with them. But in the end, nothing will be hidden. Everything will be brought to light. That's the point of the parable about the lamp in verse 21 to 25. Lamp's light, that's what they're for. When you go into a dark room with a torch looking for something, the first thing you look for isn't a bucket to put over the top of the torch so you can't find what you're looking for. You look with, you'll use the light to see. In Jesus', Jesus words, they shine a light on hidden things. Verse 22, nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. The way people respond to Jesus and his words reveals something about them. Their response reveals whether they are inside or outside the kingdom of God. So be careful how you hear. Verses 24 to 25, be careful how you receive God's word. Hear and trust God who speaks. Hear and trust God who speaks and he will speak more. Don't be like those who refuse uh, to the point where they are no longer offered anything. Jesus quoted Isaiah earlier. Lots of Isaiah and Mark. Isaiah said something similar to this in chapter 28, verse 11 to 13. should be a slide. Not read it all, but God spoke clearly in words which they did understand. 
but they refused to hear and pay attention to those words. So God says what they will hear a foreign tongue. What they will hear is his words as blah, 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 foreign word, foreign word, foreign word, nonsense in their ears. He's saying even what they had will be taken away. Don't be like those ancients who refused to see what they were shown. Don't be like scribes who hardened their hearts though they saw the truth. So what Jesus is pushing for is that when you hear his word, he's saying, listen, learn, understand, trust. And he will speak more and more and more to you. He'll add to those who receive. You'll see Jesus clearly. Then you see Jesus more clearly. Then you see Jesus more clearly. It's that sort of thing. So Jesus speaks more. He speaks more about the kingdom to those who have been listening, to those who have the secret of the kingdom. Verse 26, the kingdom of God is like a person scattering seed and waiting until harvest. He doesn't need to understand how it grows. He just waits. The seed sprouts, the seedling grows, the ear forms, the, then it fill, the, uh, the grain fills uh, the, the ear. Then when all the stuff that he doesn't understand, doesn't control has happened, he harvests. The kingdom of God is like that. It grows. The kingdom of God grows as God causes it to grow. From our perspective, there's an unknowable, uncontrollable aspect to the kingdom, but it will grow. God is growing it. He will bring the crop to maturity and harvest The kingdom present now will grow. The day will come when Jesus comes to his throne, when all people will see, all people who trust him will be brought safely home. God is growing his kingdom. And his kingdom will be a blessing to many. That's the next parable. Verse 30, Jesus says something like, what can we compare the kingdom of God to? It's like a grain of mustard seed. It's like the thing that you use when you're saying something is tiny, as tiny as a grain of mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a tiny seed which goes into the garden and grows to be the biggest plant in the garden, big enough for birds to nest in. It's like the smallest seed that grows to the plant that's bigger than you. It's like the the tiny thing which can kind of disappear into a fold in your hand but becomes a home for birds. Jesus told that parable while he was alone with the twelve and a few followers. Just that twelve, a few more, and Christ the King. The kingdom of God seems small and insignificant. Now before we're finished, Mark, it will seem smaller. It'll be Jesus alone. But it will be more. More than first met the eye. Already when Mark wrote, 25, 30 years on, there were thousands of men, women, and children in the kingdom. 
thousands in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and pushing out into the world. Thousands who were calling Jesus Christ their Lord. And we look back through more history and we see more of how the kingdom has grown. How people have been brought in. But we don't yet see the end of its growth. We don't yet see the kingdom for all that it is, at least not with our eyes. We don't yet see Jesus' kingdom towering over all the kingdoms of the earth. But we will. In some ways, we see how the small and insignificant thing has grown. In some ways, we still feel the smallness and insignificance and wait for the fullness of what will come. But one day we'll see. Scribes knew the truth of what Jesus did, but they gave it an explanation which hid the truth from them and anyone who would listen to them. The demons said a truth about who Jesus is, but they were inviting people to read in their own understanding. Is the truth you know truly true? Now, one way of answering that is to look at your head and heart and life and ask how well it fits with what we've just heard. Does it have room for Jesus and his word bringing division? Does it have room for God building his kingdom and building it in ways that seem unimpressive and insignificant? Has what you've grasped of who Jesus is and what he has done, has it set you up to keep trusting him, to keep trusting him through pain and opposition? Pain and opposition that comes specifically because you're following him. Has what you've grasped about who Jesus is and what he has done, is it guarding you from the attractions and distractions of life? Are your desires and instincts increasingly losing out to your trust in God who speaks? It's the truth you know truly true. I think another answer that opens up is to think about whether what's the, the direction of your knowledge, your understanding, the way it's impacting life. Well, you're kind of knowing more and more of who Jesus is, more and more of what he's done as time passes, or kind of less and less. As you read Mark, are you seeing Jesus more clearly? More of who he is, more of what he came to do, more of why it matters? Are you kind of closing down? If you find yourself relating to the path, well, or to the rocky ground or the thorny ground, thorny soil, well, hear Jesus' warning. It's going to just be careful how you hear. You want to hear in such a way that you're receiving it and trusting it so that God will keep measuring out more. He'll measure out more to you in proportion to how you receive. So keep receiving. 
Right now, if you've been resisting, it's time to stop resisting the Spirit of God who testifies to His Son, isn't it? It's time to pursue the truth that is truly true. If you are holding on to that truth and if it's holding on to you, if you're seeing your life shaped more and more in head and heart and, and how you live, well, keep grabbing more and more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you do reveal your Son to us in your Word, the Bible. Thank you that we meet him in the pages of the Scriptures, that we see him truly as he is. Please do make us receptive. Please make us people who listen and believe you as you speak what's true, who listen and trust you as you speak promises who listen and obey you as you speak commands. Father, please work these things in us and work them more and more as life continues while we await the day when we'll see your Son. In him, amen.